Well, good morning. If you'd like to take your Bibles out and open them up to the book of Mark, we're going to be continuing in our survey as we begin to draw on towards the end of the Gospel of Mark. Uh, as you're taking your Bibles out and you're turning there, I just want to say how thankful I am for each and every one of you as here today, we had several that were out last week who were traveling or not feeling well. Some of them are back, some are not, some others have left, some have returned. Uh, but it's so good to see each and every one of you, especially good to see those who are visiting with us. I don't even count you as visitors. Um, we, we just are always, though, happy that you are able to be with us. So in Mark chapter 14, we're going to be reading, we're going to be looking at a pivotal time in, in, life's, in, in Christ's life, uh, but I want us to recognize what Mark is doing. When we read the Gospel of Mark, we need to understand Mark's telling a story. That is Mark's purpose, is to reveal a story. He's got a story to tell. He's telling it to a Roman audience, and he has a purpose in all this. And with every story, you have parts. You have key areas in it. The climax, the, the, that, that point in Mark's story that is just Everything is built up to this great climax happens in Mark chapter 8. In Mark chapter 8, Jesus asks this question. He says, who do you say that I am? And Peter responds with that powerful phrase, you are the Christ. Um, in Matthew's account of this, in Matthew 16, he will add on to there uh, Jesus' response back to him. Upon this rock, I will build my church and you will no longer be known as Simon, but as Peter. Uh, this is that pivotal, that, that, that huge moment in the story that Mark is telling. But what we also need to understand is that there is a rising action leading up to that. In every story, if you draw back to those days of English literature, you, you had, every story had these parts and you had something that was setting the point for that great climax. And then after the climax, you would have something that was, that was leading towards a great problem and usually ending in some sort of response to that problem. We see all of that in Mark's narrative that he's telling here about the life of Christ. The rising action of Mark's gospel is, is, is this revealing of who Jesus is. He's got a story to tell about this man from Nazareth. His name is Jesus. I want you to know. And he begins his story stating the, the, the point that he's going to prove throughout. Let me tell you about the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And that's what makes that climax so powerful is everything that he has done so far is saying, let me tell you who this guy is. You, you, you don't know who he is, but I want to introduce him to you. And, and even though by the time we get to Mark 8, we've all kind of figured it out. We've all, it, it, the, the cat's out of the bag pretty quickly with the amazing thing that he's done. There is power in that confession. There is power in that final revelation that Jesus is going to finally acknowledge it. He's not going to tell the person that is coming to the conclusion, be quiet, don't say anything about that. And so we have that great climax there in, in chapter 8. But then following the climax, we, Mark leads towards his falling action in this narrative. And the falling action is not going to outline who this person is anymore. He's done a great job of telling us, showing us who he is. Now his purpose is now that you know who Jesus of Nazareth is. Let me tell you what he has done. Why should it matter to me, essentially, is what the falling action of Mark's narrative is. Why should it matter to you who Jesus Christ is, that he is the Son of God? Why should I care what he has done? And so from chapter 11 onwards, everything has been focused at what Jesus has done specifically in the last week of his life 
in Jerusalem. And just for a reminder, refresher to get us up to this point, we have seen him enter back into Jerusalem as the king riding on, on the donkey. He came into the temple as the cleansing force to purify the house of God. He has been the, the teacher that has went to the religious leaders of the day and warned them of their hypocrisy. And, and all of this that he's doing, they're preparing to kill him, and he's preparing to become what Alan just talked about a minute ago, the Passover lamb for mankind out of love. And that brings us to where we're going to be studying for today, Mark chapter 14. And it's a rather long lead, reading, Mark chapter 14, 27 through 32. We're going to cover a big chunk of verses but I hope that at the end of this, as we look through this, we will be able to see one main point to really take away and benefit us in our lives. Just before we begin reading that, before we survey, and we're going to look at it in three sections, I want us to remember what's just happened. Jesus has just partaken of the Passover with His disciples. He's instituted the Lord's Supper. He's talked about how the, the bread that they're eating should draw their minds back to that lamb that was killed in Egypt. The blood should draw their minds back to the blood that was shed on the, on the, the, the doorpost to bring in a new covenant with this people in God to, to help them to be refreshed on what it means to be saved by God. And he's telling his disciples, I'm getting ready to do that all over again. And what do they do? They leave singing hymns likely hymns of thanksgiving, and they're walking out towards the Mount of Olives. So that's, that paints the picture. There's, there's the context for what we're about to read. And, and I want to begin in verse 27 and just read through verse 42. Keeping in mind, this is everything that's just happened. Jesus has just instituted this Lord's Supper through the Passover. Then Jesus said to them, all of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go before you to Galilee. Peter said to him, Even if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. And Jesus said to him, Assuredly I say to you today, even this night, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. But he spoke more vehemently, If I have to die with you, I will not deny you. And they all said likewise. Then they came to a place which was named Gethsemane. And he said to his disciples, Sit here while I pray. And he took Peter, James, and John with him, and he began to be troubled and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch. He went a little further and fell on the ground and prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. Then he came and found them sleeping and said to Peter, Simon, are you sleeping? Could you not watch one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again he went away and prayed and spoke the same words. And when he returned, he found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy, and they did not know what to answer him. Then he came the third time and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? It is enough. The hour has come. Behold, the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. What I want us to do in this first section of what we're going to read is notice a very key contrast that's going to continue throughout what we're going to look at this morning. And that is there is a difference between the passion of the disciples and the faith of the Christ. 
You notice the raw passion. They've come, they've just observed the Lord's Supper. Jesus said all these things about the Passover lamb, and they're, they're drawing their minds back to that. Now they're singing hymns as they march off to, to Mount Olives. And in the midst of all that, Jesus says, I'm going to be struck tonight. The shepherd is going to be struck tonight, and all of you sheep are going to scatter. He's telling them, you're getting ready to desert me. And you hear Peter just like, I don't think so, Jesus. You've got it wrong. Even if everyone else, and I always read that, and I wonder if all the other disciples at this point are just rolling their eyes. Peter's like, even if all these guys that give up, not me. It's like, okay, Peter. We, thanks a lot for throwing us under the bus. But you know what? By the end of it, they're saying, yeah, we're right there with him. He says, even if it costs me my life, Jesus, you don't understand. This is never happening. I would never do what you're saying that I'm going to do. And all the rest of the disciples are right there with them. They're making this statement of passion. And it's primarily recorded through Peter's reaction. And I hope that as we look through that, as we think about that, we all carry that same passion in our lives. I hope that we look at our, at our lives and we look at what God has called us to be and we say, I will never turn away from God. I will never deny Him. Even if everyone else in the world turns away, even if this whole church falls apart, I will never turn from God. Not me. But what I also want us to see is while we need to have passion, we need to understand it's a dangerous statement what Peter is saying. It's a dangerous predicament that he's putting himself in. Because it's a statement based solely on confidence in himself. Notice what he's saying. I will never, God. He is not saying, God, please strengthen me. God, if everyone else turns away, please give me the strength not to flee, to stand strong. He's saying, I can do it. I have got this. And I imagine you felt that way before. I imagine you felt like this about sin. You've said, I've got sin whipped. I've got this problem sorted out. I can keep myself pure. I can keep myself honest. I can keep myself holy. And I pray that you can. But I know the track record of mankind since the beginning of time says the odds are not in your favor of doing that perfectly. How many Israelites, when we look back to the history, how many Israelites marched out of Egypt and I imagine as they march out of Egypt, they go, we are going to the promised land. And I'm never coming back to this filthy place that has kept me in bondage, that has made me work hard. I'm a slave no longer. I'm an Israelite. I'm a child of God. And I'm going to my promised home until things start to get hard. What did they say? Let's go back to Egypt. Let's go back to that filthy place where I was a slave and I had to work hard. Where I, was a, where I was not my own person. Let's go back to that. How many of that generation died in the wilderness? Because they didn't have faith in God. Because they didn't believe in His strength. They didn't believe in His might and in His power. And you see, that's the difference. That's the difference right there. And it's highlighted in the life of Christ. I want you to think about His example for a minute. He had a very similar trial ahead of Him as Peter was about to face. Now we look at that and go, no, 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 they are very different. They are very different, but they're very similar at the same time. Both of them are about to face persecution by a people that do not like them. Both of them are about to face persecution of people that, that want to, to, to harm them, want to, to trap them. And it doesn't matter whether they're right or wrong. They're ready to do this. And you notice, 
He doesn't tell his disciples as they march along. He doesn't say, guys, don't worry, I've got this. Everything's under control. I, I mean, he has been showing that he's in control, but he's not marching around going, look at me, I'm getting ready to just show you all how strong I am. No, in fact, he does something quite the opposite. He does something that maybe in their eyes shows, I've got a lot of doubt. I've got maybe even some weakness. He says, guys, I've got to go pray. I've got something great in front of me, and I've got to go pray. And even if this looks like weakness to the world, this is all the difference. This is the true source of strength in the life of Christ. Even as he prays, he reveals his heart. He says, Father, take this cup away from me. Father, I'm not looking forward to being crucified. Father, I'm not looking forward to being beaten. I'm not looking forward to being humiliated. I'm not looking forward to enduring this. In fact, if it is possible, and I know all things are possible with you, God, I'm asking you to take away this trial in front of me. I'm not coming to you, God, and saying, look at me, flex my muscles. I'm saying, save me, pardon me from this if I don't have to go through it, if there's some other way. Nevertheless, and I love that word in the New King James, nevertheless, other translations have it too, but some translations say yet or but. One translation I read says however, but what he's saying, when he says nevertheless, he's saying never be the less. Your will, despite my desires, will never be less your will will always be more. Your will will always greaterly, greater exceed my desires. And so if it is your will, Father, yeah, I don't want, I'm, I'm not looking forward to enduring this, but if it's your will, nevertheless, let it be fulfilled in my life. That's the difference. Peter is acting in self-confidence. Peter is acting in, I can do it, I've got this. Jesus says, I know your will. And that's what I'm wanting to focus on. That is the difference. And you know, Jesus, Jesus invites Peter to have that same attitude. When they get to the garden, he calls for Peter to watch and pray. But listen to how he does in verse 37. He says, Simon. Number one, we need to stop right there and realize, ouch, that is a painful statement that he makes to Peter right there. Simon, you remember what I referenced in Matthew 16. He said, Simon, your name's not going to be Simon anymore. It's going to be Peter. And I'm going to call you Peter because it means rock. And you just made this rock-solid confession. And that confession is going to be the foundation of anyone who wants to be a part of my church. They must believe and confess that I am the Son of God. You are being very foundational right now. Mark chapter 14. He doesn't say Peter because Peter is not being foundational. He's reverted back to Simon. He's reverted back to his old ways, and Jesus calls him out on it. Simon, watch and pray. I think we have a problem with this as well. We put on Christ. We put on our armor of God. But things start to get difficult, and we shift. You know, we have crucified that old man, and we've buried him, and he's mortified, and he's supposed to be rotted and gone, and yet somehow things get hard, and he starts digging his way out, and we start being identified more by our old self than our new self in Christ. I think we can relate with what Jesus is saying to Peter here. Simon, watch and pray. You think you're never going to deny me. You think that you, it doesn't matter what, even if it costs you your life, you will never turn away. But here, 
the enemy's not even present. I'm still with you. And I'm just asking you to stay awake. And you can't even do that. We see kind of like a mini test given to Peter. Peter's made this great, there's a, there's a turtle in front of me, I'm clearing it. There is nothing going to stop me from jumping over that. Jesus says, well, let's just let's, let's put a little tiny one in front of you and see how you handle that. And he's already showing that's stumbling him up. That's tripping him up. He can't even stay awake for just a few hours while Jesus prays. But what comes next is really what's so important about verse 37. He says, Peter, stay awake. Watch and pray so you don't enter into temptation for the flesh is willing or the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Jesus knows who Peter is. Jesus knows who Peter is better than Peter knows who Peter is. You see, we have this ability to build walls around ourselves. And I'm going to put these walls up and I'm going to plaster on the outside of the walls all of the pictures that people want to see when they look at me to make them think, I am strong, I am able, I am holy. And you know what? Those walls are see-through. I look through them. They're, they're one way though because I look out of them and people can't see in. And I see those pictures plastered all over the outside and I'm even I'm tricking myself. I am strong and I am holy. Hebrews 4, verse 13. Hebrews 4, verse 13 tells us that all things are naked and open to the eyes of Him whom we must give an account. Jesus has the ability to see through all the walls that we put up, trying to trick the people around us, trying to trick even ourselves. He is able to see to the heart of who we really are. And He sees to the heart of Peter. And he sees, Peter, you're displaying actions based off of passion. Passion over who Christ is. Confidence over who you are. And that's not going to get it. It might be a starting point. But that's not what's going to create the life that you're trying to build. However, Christ is displaying faith in God. He's displaying faith in God's will, faith in God's power, and He shows that through being honest with Him in prayer. And there's one more point that illustrates that to me, and that's this. Try to imagine for a minute the setting for where Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane in the evening time. It's getting dark, and you have an angry mob coming to arrest Him. Now, the Garden of Gethsemane is a very important place in the Jewish faith, and therefore it's been protected. And you can go to Jerusalem today and you can walk into the Garden of Gethsemane. It's still there. It has moved slightly. It's not quite the same size. There has been changes through time with, with the architecture of it and with the layout of it, but it is primarily the same spot. And you know what you find when you get there? When night falls, it's dark. It's very dark. But there's streetlights. There's streetlights up around, and there's a city that puts off a glow. I want you to separate yourself from all that for a minute. And you're Jesus, and you're in the garden, and there's a great worry on you. There's a great concern with what's ahead of you. You have a, long, a hard trial in front of you, and you're in the dark praying, and you can't see anything. You're in this garden. And enter into that, this angry mob of, of people that are, are coming with swords and clubs, and how do you think they're seeing I imagine they've got a torch. 
I imagine they've got something to light their way. They're not just walking in the dark going, how are we going to find this guy? Judas is leading the way, and he's going, I'm, I'm going to help you find the man that you need to arrest. And I don't think for a second that Jesus as the man couldn't sit in the garden and see probably a good 10 minutes before they got there this whole group of men coming, armor clanging, footsteps trotting, swords rattling, clubs, people probably talking, a light in the darkness coming to get him, and he has every opportunity to say, let's get out of here. And he stays. That's as the man. As the Son of God, he has every opportunity to say, I know what's about to happen, and you know what? Forget this. Rain down fire on them. Call in the angels. Do something. But Jesus shows us his faith. Instead of trying to get away, he goes to God in prayer. He recognizes God is the only one that can truly deliver me from this trial. And whether it be delivering me now or delivering me later, vindicating me, raising me back up, eventually I am going to be vindicated and delivered and I will trust in the God that can do that rather trusting in me and trusting in my power and trusting in my strength. And that brings us to the next section which is the actual betrayal and arrest of Christ. Read with me again, starting in verse 43. And immediately while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, with a great multitude with swords and clubs, came from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now his betrayer had given them a signal, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one. Seize him and lead him away safely. As soon as he had come, immediately he went up to him and said to him, Rabbi, Rabbi, and kissed him. Then they laid their hands on him and took him. And one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus answered and said to them, Have you come out as against a robber with swords and clubs to take me? I was daily with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then they all forsook him and fled. Now a certain young man following him, followed him having a linen cloth thrown around his naked body. And the young men laid hold of him, and he left the linen cloth and fled from them naked. What I want you to see in this account is just how crazy and how hectic things got and just how quickly they got there. I imagine none of the disciples had really any idea or any expectation things are going to get this wild this fast. And you, you have this picture of one of, the, one of the disciples with Jesus brandishing his, his sword. He's whipping out his weapon. And in John chapter 18, it reveals that's none other than our man Peter. Peter, the guy said, I will never leave you. I will stand with you. I will never deny you. And now you see him here. He's like, look at me. This is me standing with you, Jesus. I told you I wouldn't deny you. Pulls out his sword, lops off an ear. Look at me in my strength. And what does Jesus do? you read in John's account, puts the ear back on, essentially says, Peter, put that away. This is not what standing with me looks like. Because what was Peter doing yet again? He was standing in the path of God's will. You remember when Jesus, when, when Jesus told him earlier that I'm going to have to die, and he said, I don't think so. Essentially, over my dead body, you're not. And Jesus said, Peter, Satan, get behind me. Over and over again, Peter's passion has caused him to directly step right in front of God's will 
and say, I'm going to be a hindrance to this. And I think that we can learn a very powerful lesson from that. Because sometimes I feel like that's our response when we are called to defend Christ. When we are called to give a defense in some way and we're ready to just say, you know what, Lord, I'm here, I'm standing on Your side, and I'm going to whip out my sword and I'm going to start slashing around with my sword of the Spirit. I've got it right here and I'm ready to mow down and cut down anybody that gets in my path because I am defending Christ. And we are called to give a defense. We need to be prepared. We need to be prepared to use our weapons that Christ has given us as soldiers of Christ. But we need to understand that that's not always the way Christ wants it. He looks at Peter. He looks at Peter's great display of this I am with you attitude. He says, this isn't how you stand with God. This isn't how you stand with me. And we can never truly defend Christ by interfering with the will of God. We can never truly defend Christ by stepping in front of someone and Him, stepping between Him and God, some other person in God, and saying, I'm going to show you with my strength and my might and my knowledge how you're wrong and I'm right. Because we have to remember what God's will is. His will is that all men come to repentance. We will never truly be able to defend God if we jump in front of His will and hinder it. And so we have to remember, there is a way to stand with Christ. But it's not the way that Peter's showing it right now. Leaning on his own passions. Leaning on his own strength and his own self-confidence. But I want you to also see another picture here. And that is just how scattered the sheep get. Jesus shows Peter's actions are not how someone who is standing with me are going to react. And what do they do? They run. Every one of them runs. They run. Even the ones that I will never run, they run. All of them run. They run. One of them runs right out of his clothes. Everyone's running. We are getting away from this. They are getting out of there. And that's the beginning of their failure to stand with Christ as they were all so confident that they could do. And maybe I would even remark that maybe the beginning of their failure started with their confidence in themselves. But here's the beginning of their actions to stand with Christ. The failure of their actions. And it's just going to get worse. Let's keep on reading verses 53 through 72. And they led Jesus away to the high priest. And with him were assembled all the chief priests, the elders, and the scribes. But Peter followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he sat with the servants and warmed himself at the fire. Now the chief priests and all the council sought testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimonies did not agree. Then some rose up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and within three days I will build another made without hands. But even then did their testimony, even not then did their testimony agree. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, saying, Do you answer nothing? What is it these men testify against you? But he kept silent and answered nothing. Again, the high priest asked him, saying to him, Are you the Christ, the Son of the blessed? And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his clothes and said, What further need do we have of witnesses? You have heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all condemned him to deserving death. 
Then some began to spit on him and to blindfold him and to beat him and say to him, prophesy. And the officers struck him with the palms of their hand. Now as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came. And when she saw Peter himself, she looked at him and said, you also were with Jesus of Nazareth. But he denied it and said, I neither know nor understand what you are saying. And he went out on the porch and a rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him again and began to say to those who stood by, this is one of them. But he denied it again. And a little later, those who stood by said to Peter again, surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean and your speech shows it. Then he began to curse and swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. A second time the rooster crowed. And Peter called to mind the word that Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And when he thought about it, he wept. What I want us to do is where we started at. Going back to where we started in verse 22, uh, 27, contrasting the differences between Christ and Peter. So far, we've seen Peter lean on his own strength, lean on his confidence, lean on, I, I just know. And Jesus leaned on prayer and on faith in God's will. And we have seen the, the soldiers come in and Peter goes with, uh, Jesus goes with them peacefully. Peter's ready to fight. Jesus says no, and Peter flees. And now they are standing uh, at, at the, before the Sanhedrin. Jesus goes in to, to, be, uh, to, to be questioned, and Peter follows along, and now he, we see him warming his hands with the servants in the courtyard. And so very quickly, maybe one of the first things that we see when we start to say, well, what's the difference between their experiences is that Jesus is actually taken prisoner while Peter escapes. Peter gets away. Jesus is bound and arrested. Peter's out here warming his hands. And sometimes I think we're mistaken when we look around our lives and we say, nothing bad is happening to me, so things must be going pretty good. So how are things going? Everything's going well. So everything, if, if everything's going well in my life, I should have nothing to worry about. And on the surface, on the surface, that's what's going on in Peter's life. He has escaped this huge ordeal that Jesus is going through. He's gotten away from that somehow. And for the time being, he is going to be, everything's going to be okay. But already in his heart, things are marching towards a much different reality. And he's already moving towards his very own betrayal of Christ. Also, what you notice the difference in how they handle accusations. Whenever they are accused, one of them responds very faithfully while the other one is going to deny. Jesus is accused of so many false things. You notice in there, they're trying to make, they've brought people in like, hey, you say this and you say that. And they're trying to even get their story together and they still can't find a way to make all this stick to, to the perfect son of God. And even when they come in, they say, all right, this is what he said. And we've got actual proof of things that he actually said he was going to do. We still can't find a way for this to, to, to lead to him to be deserving of death. And so over and over again, they're trying to make up all of these false things about him. And in verses 60 through 61, the high priest says, what are you going to do? Aren't you going to answer them? And Jesus says, I don't have to say anything. He doesn't have to say a word. They are completely false. He trusts in God. It doesn't matter. I don't have to give a defense for myself because I'm following God's will. And if I'm following God's will, I don't have to defend that to anybody because the greatest judge will defend me in the day of judgment. So Jesus doesn't say a word until they say, are you the Son of God? Are you the Christ? 
Are you with God? Are you, are you walking on His behalf? Are you equal with Him? Is that who you're saying you are? Jesus then answers, I am. He owns up to that. But what about Peter? <laughs> Peter is accused, and they do not have to try very hard to make this stick. Everyone knows who Peter is. A servant girl looks and goes, hey, hey, I think I saw you with him. No, you didn't. No, you didn't. I'm getting out of here. I'm going to run away from this. Go outside. She comes out and follows him and says, hey, everybody, I think this is one of the guys that I saw with Jesus. No, it's not. No, no, I'm not. I'm not with Jesus. I'm not with that man. And then the people start watching him. They start monitoring him. And they, yeah, you know what? You are one of the guys that was with Jesus. You're a Galilean. Even your speech, the way you talk shows that you were with this guy. There is no false accusation being made here. He is 100% truth being brought against him and 100% the same opportunity of Jesus. Do you stand with God? Jesus says, I am. Peter lies. He curses. He swears. He repeats over and over again, I don't know that guy. The guy that I just hours ago, I will never ever say that. And now he is emphatically saying, I don't know this man. And the rooster crowed and Peter's failed. Peter's passion, his confidence, his thoughts that I would, these things will never happen. But here it is, and now it has. And what a terrible time in Mark's story. Remember, this is Mark's narrative. Mark can tell what he wants to tell. And you have to look at this and go, all right, we've got to this great climax. Everything's going good. Why leave this in there, Mark? Why tell this story? Surely you don't want us to know about the terrible failures of one of the greatest apostles, one of the greatest friends that follows Jesus. Why? Number one, I think Mark leaves this in there because this is one of the awesome, greatest stories that comes out of the, the life of Christ for us today. The readers of this story, I imagine, had to gain so much hope from this, and I hope that we can gain hope from it too. And it all boils back to one verse. That's verse 38. Verse 38 is one of the most important passages in this verse. Watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. I thought John was going to march all over my sermon this morning in class on sympathy. I was like, oh man, I'm just going to sit here and I'm going to be quiet. I'm not going to say a word because he's getting dangerously close. Hebrews 4.15. Hebrews 4.15 tells us Jesus, he is our high priest and he can sympathize with us because he has been tempted in all things but is without sin. What that tells me and what Jesus' own words here, the spirit is willing but the flesh is weak, says Jesus knows our struggles. He knows how hard it is, and He understands how hard it is. Now, we need to very clearly say that doesn't mean He condones our failures. But when we fail, He knows the struggle. He understands that even though we have spirits that are willing, we have flesh that is weak. And so I want to close with that thought. I want to give you a couple ideas of how this should affect my thinking. And the first one is I need to recognize where true power and true strength to endure and overcome comes from. Philippians 4 verse 13 tells us that it's not in us. 
tells us that Peter was wrong in his thinking to say, I can do this. This is all on me. Philippians 4.13 says that I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Through Christ. That is by His power. Brethren, I want you to be confident. I want you to be confident that you can overcome. I want you to be confident that you can endure. I want you to have passion that says, I will never. But not because of who you are. I want you to rest assured that the strength and the, and, and the abilities that you need does not come from your own superhuman characteristics. It comes from God and from His strength and leaning upon Him in faith and in prayer. I want you to think about what that should cause in us. When we endure, when we endure some hardship, it should create humility in our lives. It's not, look at me, I battled this sin, I battled that, I dealt with this persecution, and I came through. But rather, watch what God is doing in my life. And give glory to Him. He has lifted me up. He has helped me to endure. He has helped me to overcome. And if that can create humility in our lives, you know what it can also create? It can also create faithfulness and a lack of fear. When Satan throws another stumbling block, another hurdle in front of you, let me make it a little bit worse this time. You can say, God brought me through. God brought the Israelites through the Red Sea. God brought the Israelites through famine. God brought the Israelites through attacks by enemies. And it was that second generation that leaned upon that and said, we're not going to go in there and take this land. We know that we can but it's not because of who we are. It's because God marches ahead of us. Knowing that true power to endure, true power to overcome comes from God, humbles us and strengthens us in our faith. It helps us to look onto the horizon and say, no matter what may come, I know that God can get me through it. That's where I'm going to hold on to. And that's what I'm going to grab a hold of. And so that idea of speaking of, of, of trials, speaking of things that are in the future, things that are on the horizon that, that our eyes should be on, Jesus' words said it best. He said, watch. Have eyes that are open. All too often, we spend our lives just lollygagging through trying to find ourselves and, and, and just somehow we're going to get through this life. And then we do find ourselves. We find ourselves in trouble. We find ourselves in a whole mess of trouble before we even see it coming. John said he's not going to talk about punctuality, so I'll talk about it right now. You ever had somewhere you had to be? You ever had somewhere that's like, you know, I've got to, maybe it's church service, um, or I've got a job that I've got to get to at a certain time. I've got an appointment. I've got somewhere I have to be, and I know. Here's the time right here. I've got to be there at that time, and I need to leave my house at this time. But then you get busy, and you're not watching the clock anymore. Maybe you're working on something else that's really important, or maybe you're just relaxing, you're watching TV, you're chatting with family or friends, but you're doing something else. And all of a sudden you look up and it's like, oh no, I've completely missed my appointment or I'm running late. I'm not going to be able to get there on time. And how quickly that snuck up on us because we weren't watching the time. That happens to the best of us. Sometimes it happens more than it should, but it happens to the best of us. But sadly, it happens all too often in our spiritual lives. We're not watching. Families, families that don't watch their children 
and don't watch themselves. And we say, you know what? We're raising children and our children are going to grow up to be godly children. They're going to grow up to love God. They're going to grow up to follow Him. That's what we're raising. And we're, raising, we're talking about families that look to each other and say, I am committed to this relationship. I will never cheat. I will never be unfaithful. But then some years down the road, we find families with children that have fallen away. Children that are no longer faithful to the Lord. Parents who have split up because one, one of the, the, the members of that family has been involved in a relationship that they never should have been involved in. And, and we look at this and it's, it's heartbreaking. And we talk to him and you know what, what people say all the time? I never saw it coming. Because I wasn't, they weren't looking at the things they were doing today. They have a goal. It's not that they don't have passion. It's not that they don't have a desire, a commitment. But they weren't faithfully leaning upon the strength and the power of God to watch for these things and to watch out for them. And that's just one example. We can find so many other examples in our lives where we need to be watching. And Jesus calls for us to be on guard. On guard now and today. And be on guard for things that may come in the future, but always be on guard. And He calls for us to watch and He also calls for us to pray. I want you to notice Jesus did not face the trial in front of Him unprepared. You ever hear somebody say, well, I'm just going to wing it. I've got a friend that I love him to death, but he'll have maybe a Bible class or something. or a, a talk. He says, I'm just going to wing it. It's the terrible, terrible mentality to approach anything, really. We need to prepare ourselves for really important stuff. We should probably prepare ourselves for everything. Jesus prepares Himself. And He prepares His disciples. He spent the last several chapters saying, saying look, I'm going to die and I'm going to be raised again and you need to know about this. And they're having a hard time with it. But He's also preparing Himself. He goes in the garden to God in prayer. We should be people of prayer. And when should we be people of prayer? Well, should we be people of prayer whenever the, the trial is upon us? Should we be people of prayer when somehow we've come through the trial and, and, and we've, we've accomplished God's will? No, we should always be people of prayer. Even when we don't see the trial, even in the future. 1 Thessalonians 5.17 says, Pray without ceasing. Constantly be going to God in prayer. Going to God seeking His strength and His mercy. And we should pray to Him when we expect a struggle, just like Jesus did. That God will help us. I, I see the temptation in front of me. I see the trial. I see the, the persecution maybe that's coming my way. And God, please give me strength. That's going to be my prayer until this is over. Is just give me strength and your will be done and, and help me to glorify you in that way. But also, when, when we don't even know that the struggle is coming, we don't even see the hurdle in the future. Are we people of prayer that say, God, I, things seem like they're going well right now. Please guard me. Put that hedge up around my heart because I know Satan still wants me. He hasn't given up. Help me to have eyes that are open to, to, to problems in my life. Help me to still be relying on You. But most importantly, pray that God's will be done. I want you to think about Jesus in that prayer. He could have said, God, send angels. He could have said, God, get me out of this situation. He goes to God and says, I don't want to endure it if it's possible, but nevertheless, it's Your will that's important to me. And so we need to pray that God can be glorified in our life. Sometimes we're going to have to suffer. Sometimes there's going to be persecution. Sometimes there's going to be hardships that we have to endure. 
And if we spend all of our time saying, God, get me out of this one. Get me out of that one. I don't want to go through it. I don't want to go through that. We're missing out on the opportunity to glorify God. Because some of the greatest opportunities to show who God is is when we endure suffering and we do it faithfully. Don't be afraid of suffering because you know the God that is with you. You know the God that is giving you your strength. And so pray and know that with watchful eyes and prayerful hearts, we are better prepared to endure and to stand strong when the schemes of the devil come against us. But I also want us to realize one last point. And that is even the closest of Jesus' friends, the people closest to Him, John. You think about that. John is in this group. The disciple that Jesus loved is in this group and he gets out of there. Even the closest to him failed in his time of need. And so my last point is when sin does overcome you, don't be defeated. You are going to fail. We need to know that. I think that's an important statement for us to consider. I am going to fail. For those of us that are mature in our faith, I am going to fail. For those of us that are young in Christ, I am going to fail. Whether I was baptized 50 years ago or 5 days ago, we need to understand something about our life and our walk with the Lord. We come out of that water, and and if you're like me, you feel like this. I have got Satan whipped. I don't know where he is. He's been shoved down in some dark hole and he's whimpering because he's lost me and the power of God has said, get out of his life. And I am here to stand with God for the rest of my life. The things that I used to do, I'm not doing those anymore. I'm never turning away from who I am today and from God until it happens. That moment that I wasn't thinking about, that moment that I wasn't watching for, that moment I wasn't praying for, the thing that I said I will never do, I turned my eyes from Christ, I turned my eyes back to some shiny worldly thing, and sin happens. I've entered back into sin, back into slavery. And in those moments, how easy it is for us to feel despaired, for us to feel defeated, for us to look at our lives and say, I couldn't do it. I thought I could, but I didn't. I didn't do it. Brothers and sisters, I want you to know today, and especially for our young ones, I want you guys to know Jesus has words for you. The Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I want you to think of His other words too. In John chapter 21, what He says to Peter after Peter fails. Peter denies, runs away, says, I'm going back to my old life. I'm going to be a fisher. I'm I'm done. And you have this account in John 21 where Jesus calls them back. And they're sitting on the shore of the Sea of Galilee and they're eating breakfast. In verse 15, when they had eaten breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. And he said to him again a second time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? And he said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of Jonah, do you love me? 
And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Most assuredly, I say to you, when you were younger, you girded yourself and you walked where you wished. But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and another will gird you and carry you where you do not wish. This he spoke signifying by what death he would glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he said to him, follow me. What are the two questions he asked the failed Peter? It's the two questions we need to ask ourselves. He said, Peter, do you love me? He calls Peter to recall his passion. Recall who Christ is. Think back to that. Do you love me, Peter? And if so, will you follow me? We're going to slip. We're going to stumble. We're going to have times where we fail Christ. Don't be defeated. Remember who Christ is. Remember that He doesn't condone sin. But He is our high priest who has been tempted just like you have been, yet without sin. And He understands that the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Have you become a saved child of God today? Christ's Gospel, which is what Mark has been preaching to us throughout what we've been studying, is revealing who He is, what He's done, but also how He should respond. In Mark 16, He says, He sends His disciples out and He says, I want you to go into all the world and I want you to preach to everyone you can just what I've been telling you. I want you to tell them who I am. I want you to tell them what I've done. And for those who believe, I want you to invite them to obey Me. He speaks about that in the, in the form of baptism. We would like to assist you today in obeying Christ. But we would also like to assist those who maybe have failed, who maybe have fallen away, or those who have stumbled or tripped somehow in their walk with, life, with Christ and have allowed something else to take first place rather than Him. And if that describes you this morning, there's one last verse that I want you to think about. 1 Corinthians 16 and verse 9 says, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show Himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to Him. Do not get the picture in your mind that God is standing in heaven waiting for you to mess up, so I got Him. I can send that one to hell. What did God tell through His Word to the children of Israel, I'm looking for an opportunity to show off my strength. I'm looking for an opportunity to show you how I can help you. But the question is, will you be loyal to me? The question is, will you follow Jesus? If we can assist you with that today, I would urge you to please come forward as we stand and as we sing.